book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. For those of you that were here last week, yes, again, 1 Peter, <laughs> chapter 1. Uh, last week during our morning Bible study hour, we actually went through verses 17 to 19, and we looked at what it means to call God our Father, which is something that only saved people can actually do, uh, mind you. You know, the very moment that you got saved, Galatians chapter 4 tells us you, that you have then been adopted as a child of God. So only then you actually become a child of God. But then Peter reminds us in verse 17 of this chapter that even though God is our Father, He is also our judge. And so we looked at what this judgment is going to entail for those that are saved already. And I think that it's a great reminder for, for all of us, actually, that are saved, to keep on living holy lives. And that was the point of Peter um, right there from about verse 13 onwards to verse 17, is that we should be living holy lives as Christians. Because, remember, every single one of us, every single one of us is going to be judged one day. Uh, the question is just, at what judgment will you end up? Uh, like I said, uh, we looked at the judgment that those that are saved will go to last week. So uh, if you didn't catch that, I, I believe there's a recording somewhere about that, or we can speak about that. But in short, that judgment for saved people, it, it doesn't decide on whether you're going to heaven or hell. Okay, So don't worry about that. that that's not what that is at all. And if, if you think about it, if you're already saved, you've already been cleansed from your sins. We've just sang that Jesus paid it all. All right, so all of your sins have been taken away. So yes, you are then going to heaven, okay, if you are saved. No, no matter what, no matter what. Not because you aim to live a holy life. Please understand that correctly. That's not why, okay? But it's because Jesus paid for all of your sins. That's the reason. We need to get that straight. If you are not saved, on the other hand, then you will stand trial for every single sin that you have committed. Every single sin. How many are there? How many have you done? You can't even remember what you did yesterday. They will be judged. What, whether that sin was something that you did, whether it was something that you said, maybe it was uh, something that you thought, I don't know. But every single one of them will be brought into judgment, folks. And really, who, who can stand in that judgment and try to bring in any sort of defense for themselves? There's, it's going to be pointless. Uh, you can't bring any sort of justification for the sins that you have committed when you end up in that judgment. Uh, what, what will you be able to bring God? <laughs> you know, that's really a rhetorical question, um, but I'll answer it anyway. You can't, can't bring anything. You can't bring any excuses. There, there will be none that will make it, but people will try in that day of judgment, and we're going to see that uh, when we get there. People will try to justify themselves, as they do right now. But, you know, people have this idea in their minds that the things that they have done is not as bad as the things that the next person did. Am I right? And therefore, God will excuse them since, you know, God is actually just after the really bad ones. You know, Adolf Hitler, yes, God is going to judge that man. He won't judge me. He won't judge me. Uh, Folks, that's simply not true. If he did that, then he wouldn't be a just judge. All right? 
God said that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire, right? That means all of them. Like in all of them. Right? I hope to get that. And, and now God has no co- problem in communicating like we do or maybe like I do. Um, but there never was a single instance that God said that he was going to do something and then he just didn't do it. Because if you think about that, if that ever was the case, then it means that God is a liar. And if he is a liar, yes, then he is a sinner. And you can see where this is going. But folks, if the God that you are praying to and worshipping is the one that will excuse some sins and not others, then it's not the God of the Bible. It's not. That God of yours is a figment of your imagination. And uh, that is a God that conforms to whatever you think is right, or however you think that he should judge. But you see what you're doing here then, is that you're making yourself God, because you're dictating how he should judge. And I have found that mostly the God that people worship is the kind of God that will very specifically excuse their own sin. He will judge the rest, (laughs) but he's going to excuse me because, well, I am me. (laughs) I mean, that's basically how it goes. Um, You can ask people and, and you will find those answers. But the reason why they do this is because they think that they are basically good people and they are not as bad as the next guy. They are, uh, um, they are comparing themselves with other people instead of what God said. So their God will punish other people, but not them. And so, folks, I fear that uh, for many people that actually place themselves within this, call it Christian camp, simply because that's the way that they grew up, or maybe they came into a Christian group and they experienced some love and fellowship because these people took them in, or something like that. But they are worshipping a God of their own making. Now sure, they didn't go out, you know, cut down a tree, took a piece of it, whittle it down, make a nice statue, put it down, you know, nail it uh, to the ground, otherwise it'll wobble, you know, you don't want that when it's raining or whatever, and started to worship it. They didn't do that, Okay. Uh, But I think that's sort of the picture that we get when we think of idolatry. We think of somebody doing that. But these people are doing the same exact thing, except they're not physically making something. I think they're taking the lazy route, if you can say it in that way. But they made up a God in their own minds. They make up their own concept of God without ever consulting the Word at all. Or maybe they pick and choose the parts of God that they like. You know, I'll take this, but throw that out. You're making up a God of your own making in your own mind. It's a figment of your imagination if you do that. These people have no concept of the righteousness of God or the holiness of God or the true love of God. These are the people that are going to be the most surprised, I think, to find themselves at the judgment. And Jesus is going to tell them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Folks, whenever I say those words or, or read it or hear it, I get the chills. Those, that's going to be horrible words to hear, very frightening. But they will hear that because they never received salvation. Because they never thought that they needed salvation. Folks, there is only one way to be saved, 
And, uh, and we try to be as clear as possible on that rear. Because that's, that's the way that the Bible puts it. The Bible is clear on that. There's only one way, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. You know, we, let's look at verse 18 here. K- keeping in mind that in this context, uh, Peter is writing to saved people, but we can still learn a- a- about how to be saved in this piece here, in this text. Verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, but as, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. I think Peter makes the point nice and clear uh, in this text. You know, we can only be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Not by silver, not by gold, not by any good works or good thoughts, hopes, wishes or dreams. It is only through Christ that we can be saved. Through faith and trust in what He did on that cross. That He died for us on that cross. That He paid for our sins on our behalf on that cross so many years ago. And that God obviously raised him up again from the dead. And like Peter says here, he gave him glory by giving him all power in in heaven and in earth and a name above all names. Folks, it is hard to imagine just how much Jesus had to humble himself simply to come down as a man to this planet. You know, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that even though Jesus is God... He came and he made himself of no reputation. You would think that if God would come down, I mean, he would come down and say, I am God, you know, you better listen to me. He didn't do that. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He had to tremendously humble himself just to become a man, just to become like one of us. He's so different. He's so much more different than us. You know, that that really does say something, right? And his humility didn't stop when he became a man. Folks, even in his birth, he humbled himself. He was born in a stable. The king of kings was born in a stable. He lived a life of poverty. And in the end, he died like a vile criminal on a cross. I mean, there were many ways to execute somebody back then. It's not like the cross was the only way to kill somebody. But executing them by crucifying them was designed to humiliate that person that's being crucified. It was also designed to be the ultimate torture. And so Jesus was killed, no, he was tortured to death even though he was innocent, completely innocent. He had no faults or sins of his own. He was the only man that has never sinned. And he was killed like the worst of the sinners. They nailed him to that cross in the same way that a botanist would nail a fly you know, in his collection with a pin. With, with no, not even thinking twice. You know, it didn't bother them at all. As a matter of fact, they were actually happy to get rid of him. He, he was causing some problems, you know, for them at least. Philippians 2 and verse 8 says, 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he humbled himself, not only in life, but even in the way that he died. But he didn't even stop there. You know, he didn't even have his own grave. Do you know that? He had to borrow somebody else's grave. Didn't even have his own grave. Now they had to roll a big stone in front of that grave to close it up and and then that thing was, they ordered it to be sealed. And they placed a guard there, you know, just to make sure that the disciples won't come in the middle of the night, you know, steal the body and, and say, look, he's risen, he's risen, you can see he's not there. Um, you know, to, to counter that. Because remember, Jesus did preach that he was going to die and that he's going to rise again in three days. They knew what to expect. And he did it. <laughs> he actually rose from the dead. You know, the Bible tells us that on the third day since his death, he rose again from the dead. He's alive and well today, folks. He's alive. That's why we're here today. Now, folks, I, what, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? That God would send His Son to go through all of that and to pay the ultimate price for sinners. I think we get so used to that word sinners, we, we forget what that means. You know, We're a bunch of rebels. You know, the Bible says that that is the way that God proved His love toward us. In that Christ died for us even though we are sinners, even though we are rebels, even though we are the enemies of God. Yes, you heard that right, enemies of God. He still came and He died for us. Even though we are haters of God and we only love ourselves. He still did that. What kind of love is this? You've never experienced anything like this. And so, it is in this death and in this burial that the humiliation of Christ reached its lowest point, in my opinion. You know, we read here in verse 21 that it is after this that God then raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. God glorified Him. Paul actually expands on this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. He says the following, I'm just going to read it for you. Wherefore God also hath exalted Him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is through the resurrection and through the ascension of Jesus back to heaven that God restored him to the glory that he had even before the world even began. After Jesus went up uh, with, the, with the clouds back to heaven, he went and he sat down on the right hand of God, which is the position of power, if you, if you go look at that, if you want to make a study of the right hand. It's the position of power. Now, there's one thing that I w want to quickly address here, and uh, let's think back for a moment, back to Genesis chapter 3, where uh, we read about the very first sin that man has committed. Now, I've spoken to people before, and I've heard preachers actually preach something along the lines that would make you think that God didn't even know that man was going to sin. You know, he was sort of caught off guard there, and, oh no, what are we going to do? Okay, let's make a plan of redemption. <laughs> no, that's, that's not how it happened, you know. But the question then comes up, okay, so did he know that man would sin? Well, of course he knew, <laughs> You know, one of the attributes that we learn about God in the Bible is that He is all-knowing. 
all-knowing. The Bible tells us that he declares the end from the beginning. God was not caught off guard by the sins of man at all. He knew full well that man, what man would do after he created him. He knew that even before he created man. And, he, and so he also knew that a plan of redemption had to be made even before the foundation, the very foundation of the world was laid. He had already made that plan. We read here in verse 20, you can look there with me, talking about Jesus, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in this, these last times for you. So Christ was foreordained even before the foundation of the world to redeem us with his precious blood. That's the point here. That means that that plan of redemption was made even before anything started. You know, if you can imagine such a thing. I, I can't. <laughs> All right? But folks, that's amazing. Now, of course, it brings up a lot of other questions. No, it, it, it really opens up a can of worms if we, if we start about uh, talking about the foreknowledge of God and what He foreordained and all, all of these things. But um, I'm going to uh, disappoint you today. We're not going to look at that. Not today. Not today. We may in the future. But folks, that is the plan of God. It, his plan was to redeem mankind. It was for him to come down to earth, to humble himself, to become a man, and then dying in the place of sinners, in the place of you and I. He died in our place. And then he defeated death even <laughs> by rising again from the dead. And then he made this salvation available as a free gift. It's a free gift. That's amazing. You know, you only need to receive this gift by putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone and the complete payment that he has made. You know, we, we, we're getting to that time of Christmas now. You know, we, you walk into the shops and you see all these decorations and whatnot and the shops are very excited because they're going to get money. <laughs> you know, they're very excited about that. But so we're going to start to buy each other some gift, you know. It um, doesn't matter what it is, or maybe you can't afford to buy a gift, but you, you're going to give somebody some sort of gift, I'm sure. That's, that's the tradition, at least. Now, if I were to give you a gift, which I'm not because I don't have enough money for all of you, but... Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, but if I were to give you a gift, how much will I expect you to pay for that gift? Nothing. Nothing. Otherwise, it's not a gift. If you pay for it... <laughs> then it means that you bought it. Then it's not a gift. It, 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 it's kind of contrary to that. This salvation was made available as a free gift, folks. You can't pay for this thing. You can't. And even if you could, you wouldn't have enough money. Not even the richest man in the world will have enough money for that. You only receive it by faith. Now these people that Peter was writing to here, they already put their trust in Jesus. We, we read that throughout this whole chapter. We know he's writing to saved individuals. Now, but folks, if you're not saved today, I hope you will do the same today, that you will put your faith and trust in Jesus alone to be saved. But okay, let's read on and we can see what we can learn from this. Let's go to verse 22. So he's, he's continuing this thought and he's saying, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through uh, sorry, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So now in, the, in this part of this chapter, Peter is moving on to the next exhortation that, that, he, that he gives these 
folks. Now, these folks were going under um, or living under some severe persecution. And then this next um, thing that he tells them to do is love the brethren. Love the brethren. But I want you to notice the language here because that's important. He says specifically, look at that, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls. So he's taking for granted that their souls already have been purified. And then he's continuing on from there to exhort them to love each other. Now that shows us this, that this love for each other is based on the fact that their souls were already purified. An impure, unwashed, lost, and sinful soul does not have the capacity to love the way um, that Peter is describing here. It does not. Now this purification that Peter is talking about here is obviously something that has happened to them uh, at some past event. And I, I think by now you already know what it was. You know. um, it was when they received the salvation of their souls. It was when they were redeemed. And we've been looking at what Jesus did to save us. I've, I've explained that. But now the result of receiving that salvation from Christ is the purification of your soul. Meaning that your soul gets completely washed from any trace of sin. It's all gone. It's gone. It's paid for. Your soul is purified if you are saved today. So, okay, how do we know that this purification that he's talking about is actually salvation? Well, the context tells us that. All right, look at verse 23 for a moment. I'm just going to read these first three words. He says, yeah, and, and this is still the same sentence. I want you to notice that. It's still the same sentence starting in verse 22. So verse 23, being born again. Being born again. So that shows us what he has in mind when he's talking about this purification of your souls. That purification of your soul happened that very moment when you were born again. Just like that. It was, it was cleaned up. And you were born again at the very moment that you received salvation, the moment that you were saved. And so your soul was purified that moment that you received salvation. All right? That's actually a very simple thing. It means that all of your sins were washed away, folks. All of it. All of it paid for on your behalf. And this inward purification then ultimately leads to outward purity or holy living, as is in this context. I, I think it is in verse... 15 and 16, he talks about, the, he tells them to live holy lives. Be holy, be ye holy, for I am holy, said the Lord. So it, it naturally works outward, this thing that has happened inside. And folks, that's just an expected result of being saved. Uh, that the things that you will do, that, or that you do, will actually change. It will be different from before you were saved. And even your deeds will be purified then. Do you remember that Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 15, that he said that it's not the things that go into your mouth that defiles you, but it's the things that come out of your mouth, you know, because it comes from the heart. He said there in Matthew 15 and verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. So the things that defile you start in the heart. And then it works outward, where it is then physically manifested. But it all starts inside here. And that physical manifestation is then obviously the proof of what is going on inside here. 
Now, even though Jesus was talking about what actually defiles you, I believe that we have a principle here. And that is that your deeds will reflect what is going on inside of your heart. And that's simple, right? It actually makes sense. Uh, you've seen it in your own lives, I, I'm, I'm sure. Your deeds will reflect what's going on inside of your heart. And this principle holds true for someone whose soul has been purified then. Now remember that the soul is the real you. That is you. It's not this body. Folks, it's not this body. One day you're going to die. This body is going to die. We're going to stick it in the ground and it's done. But the soul is the thing that lasts. That is the real you. That is the thing, if you are saved, that actually goes to God in heaven. So if your soul has been purified, then at some point your deeds will show it. It will be manifest. It's just a natural outworking of the work that has been done inside of you. And, and Brother Armand actually spoke about this uh, this morning in the, in the Bible study, is that this faith will work out. It, it will manifest in works. You know, James tells us this in James chapter 2, where he talks about the correlation between faith and works. And there in James chapter 2 and verse 26, he says the following, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith without works is dead. His point being that you can't have faith without some sort of physical manifestation of your faith. It will be proved in some way. It, it, it has to. Your faith will necessarily, or your works, sorry, will necessarily reflect what is going on inside of you. It just would. Now, I love the way that Peter puts it here in verse 22. Look at that again. He says, verse 22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. So how were the souls purified? By obeying the truth. So according to Peter, this purification happened because these people obeyed the truth. Now, some people may object here and say, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we saved by faith, you know, uh, isn't that how it works? Well, exactly, you're right. We are saved by grace through faith. That's right. That is the only way to be saved, right? So what's Peter talking about here? Well, to obey the truth simply means to submit to it. That's it. Submitting to the truth. So he's talking about receiving and believing the message of the gospel. You know, the gospel message is not only an invitation to receive the greatest gift, which is eternal life, through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only an invitation, but it's also a command. You know, in Acts chapter 17, Paul gets up on Mars Hill and where he brilliantly uses um, one of the altars that the Athenians built there. They built it to the unknown God. <laughs> and he uses that to preach to them, or to preach the gospel to them. And there in verse 30 of, of Acts 17, he tells them, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. All men. God is commanding you today, right now, to repent and to obey the gospel. It is a command from God that should be obeyed. And so we plead with men <laughs> to submit themselves to the truth of the gospel. That's the best we can do is just plead with you. Please do that if you are not saved today. But now let's finish up verse 22. 
We're going to start it from the beginning again, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. See that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently. This unfeigned love that he is talking about, uh, it may be a strange word to you, um, you know, especially since I know most of you are not native English speakers. But what that means, it, it means it's a sincere love. It's not a fake kind of love. It's a sincere love. It's a, it's a kind of love that can't be expressed in words, uh, or, or cannot only be expressed in words, but it is backed up by deeds. Okay? It's, it's, it's words and deeds, or just deeds. It is not a fake or a hypocritical kind of love, but it, it is a true, true love. Now let me be clear about this. This is not talking about some kind of emotional feeling that sweeps over you and suddenly you love this other believer. Okay? It's, not, it's, it's not a Hollywood kind of love. It is a true love that comes from the heart. It is the love of choice. It's, it's the kind of love that can respond to a command to love one another. You know, it's the kind of love that actually cares about the other person. Really, truly cares about that person. It is the kind of love that is completely stripped from all selfishness. So that you don't ever expect anything back from it. It's a selfless kind of love. So what does that look like? Well... It is when you sacrifice some of your time to go and visit a brother in the hospital when they are in pain and struggling with the thought of going on with surgery or maybe they came out of surgery and they're in pain and it's, 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 it's not a nice thing to be in a hospital at all. It's when you sacrifice some of your time for that brother to be there for him. Or it's when you reach out to a widow, a, a real widow that is in need. Or maybe if you reach out to a single parent that is struggling struggling to make ends meet, struggling to raise their children. It's when you help them, help them to get, get up again. It, it is when you come in alongside a brother that is struggling with sin and you help them up, say, come on, let's walk this path, the path of the Lord. It's that kind of love. It's, the, it's that self-sacrificial kind of love. And we really have the best example of this in Jesus, right? Look at what he's done for us. In John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. He repeats it because we're deaf to that. (laughs) It's a new commandment that he gave us, to love one another. In the next verse, verse 35 of John 13, he says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. Or, or if you have love one to another. That's the proof of being one of his disciples, is that you love one another. This love towards one another actually testifies of that to the world, and they can see that. And, and that is the commandment that Jesus gave us, is to love one another. We should love one another. Today, we should love one another. And this co- commandment is echoed throughout the whole New Testament, One example, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23, John tells us, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. There's a command. You should believe on his name. (laughs) But there's the other one. And love one another, 
as He gave us commandment. And we even have it here in verse 22, um, where it says that, um, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So then in this verse, verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is saying that, all right, since, ye are, since you are now saved, I'm, I'm starting to speak King James English. I don't know what's going on there. But <laughs> since you are now saved, and since your souls have been purified by obeying the truth of the gospel, by believing in Jesus Christ, then that should cause us to love one another. That's actually the motivating factor to love one another. The common foundation that we have as saved people is Jesus Christ. And He proved His love to us in the most amazing and magnificent way. Well, folks, I, I've thought about this a little bit and I, I, I found it interesting to note, actually, how Christians are able to connect with each other, even though they absolutely have absolutely nothing in common um, except for Jesus Christ. That's interesting, right? That's amazing. Um, I've seen it so many times. You know, I would meet some brother or sister and, and we'll start chatting, you know, uh, uh, maybe about worldly things, you know, which is not necessarily sinful. We're talking about what job do you do? What do you like? And I found out we have nothing in common at all. But we have this one thing, this common ground, which is Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. That is what's making that connection. Folks, we were put into a family, into the family of God, with Jesus Christ as our elder brother. We've been put into this family, and that is why it works. That is why we can sit in a church like this and have people from all sorts of cultures and backgrounds. And we can sit together here, and we can sing together, and we can enjoy the Bible together. It's because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And the world looks at that and says, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, it's fine. It makes sense to me. <laughs> it's the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. So I know that many of you have been loving one another. I know that. And I, uh, I've, I've heard a lot of stories. And, um, and I also know that most of us, and I say us, can still do more to love each other. Of course we can. So let's take this exhortation of Peter in verse 22 to heart. Let's love each other fervently, like he says here, with a pure heart, without expecting anything back. Let's be fervent in loving each other. You know, there's some fire to it. We, we want to do that. That's what it's about. You know, when you got put into the body of Christ, it's only natural to have love for other Christians. That is true. That is actually one of the evidences that you are saved, is that you love the brethren. And so that is already taken for granted here in verse 22. But now the exhortation is, let's go beyond that. Let's love each other with a fervent heat. Let's keep on doing that. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, you have proven love for us. You've, you've or taught love to us. You've, you've shown us what it is, Lord. You've proved your love toward us. And that's the only reason why we can love, Lord. It's because of your love. It's the only reason we can love you. It's the only reason we can love our brothers and sisters. Lord, so we want to thank you today and praise your name 
for what you've done for us. That you not only saved us, Lord, but you provided a family. Lord, that's something that, that's priceless, Lord. It's just priceless. Thank you so much, Lord. Lord, I, I want to pray for those that are not saved today. That's here. And we know there are some people here that are not saved, Lord. Oh, Lord, please touch their hearts. Please save them, Lord. Please let them run to you. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father because you saved us. Please help us to love each other better, to go above and beyond. I want to say above and beyond the call of duty, Lord. (laughs) We don't just want to do this because it's a command. We want to do it because of you, because of what you've done for us, Lord. And we praise your name for that today. Lord, will you please bless our fellowship? Will you please be with us the rest of this day? And will you keep on working in us, Lord? We've heard so much from the Bible today. Oh, Lord, please don't let us forget that. Please don't let the birds come and snatch it away when we walk out of here. Please don't let the troubles of this world, Lord, choke it out. Please keep on working in us and make us more like Christ. We praise your name today. Amen.